Everybody, Happy New Year. Glad to be with you guys. Good to be back in Mission Viejo. Let me move some stuff around real quick. Uh, let, me, um, let me ask you, how many of you guys, just to get stuff going, um, how many of you guys, um, you're wearing something you got new from Christmas? Like right now, you got to get, you're wearing it, it's new. A couple people, a couple people doing the like, Yes, I am. Okay, a couple people evaluating. Good. Some of you guys still have a tough time waking up. Um, I had um, any, another question. How many of you guys went to bed about 9 o'clock last night? Like you, you kind of were like, hey, it's, it's, it's New Year's Eve somewhere. <laughs> Saw the footage of the ball drop. I, my wife and I were watching. Our, we were at the pool with our neighbor, like a bunch of kids from our neighborhood. I got a text after last night's service. And my wife said, just put your, go, find, go put your trunks on and then come find us at the pool. Our whole neighborhood's there. We're hanging out. And our kids at about 8. 30 just started looking like the walking dead like they just look like we're, we're tired can we go home now and it was like yes so we took our kids home we were in bed like 9 30 I'm like you know I, I watched the ball drop as we're putting the kids to bed and I was like I have no desire to stand with that crowd of people this seems like the dumbest thing in the world I'm so glad that it's nine o'clock and kids are in bed and we're going to sleep it was great so really unbelievably killer New Year's I was kind of crazy I had a Mr. Pib at about seven o'clock I know crazy so Almost, almost didn't fall asleep at 10. Anyway, very good to be with you guys. Great to be at Mission Viejo and to see some of you guys again and to be here. So um, before we get started, would you, um, would you pray with me? And then we'll kind of get into today's message and see what God has for us. So let's pray. Jesus, huh, we, <laughs> we take a breath after um, a, an extended Christmas season of family and all the joy <laughs> and wonder that that brings and all of the frustration, if we're honest about that as well, and all the changing of routines, and God, we are excited about um, even the, the beginning of a new season, a chance to sort of have the, the do-over, the restart, to redirect and to reset our lives. And so God, would that start today, in this moment? God, we believe and understand, as much as we're able, that you are already present. We acknowledge you in this place. God, some of us are in need of restoration and of hope. Some of us are in need of comfort. Others of us are in need of a celebration. Others of us are in need of each other. And God, would that be present here today in some way? God, would you help us to remember our first and greatest love in you, that we belong to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, well, let me ask you this, guys, another sort of question. Guys, maybe this happened to you on this particular Christmas shopping season. Let me just ask you if this was you, just by, by show of hands. How many of you guys, you know, you're with your girlfriend, fiance, wife, whatever it might be, maybe even it's even your sister, and at some moment in the shopping, you're in a mall somewhere, and someone, th- this other person hands to you their purse. Will you hold this for a moment? Anybody have this? Guys, this how this happened to you? Yep. A couple guys there that are like, yep, I had to give something up at that moment. Um, this is kind of a weird scenario. My, um, my wife says to me, um, hey, Jeff, uh, I got to take Molly to the bathroom. Molly's my five-year-old daughter. She's like, I got to take Molly to the bathroom. Hold my purse. And I had a, this, kind of this, the amount of conversation went through my head was this. It was like, uh, you can't take the purse. Why can't you take the purse with you? Why do I have to hold it? What if I wasn't here? I would, you know, like, Molly, I have to go to the bathroom. Excuse me, sir, uh, you, I, you, I, I can't take my purse into the bathroom. Could you mind holding this while I take my daughter in? I, I just can't, I'm like, how does this, if, the, if I wasn't here, does she, do you have to tell her she has to hold it? Or do you figure out another scenario? And there's this sort of, there's all this sort of difficult interchange that happens between couples in this scenario. Because you don't want to seem super eager to help because then you're a guy who likes holding a purse. Like, oh, yes, 
right? You don't want to be that. But you also don't want to be like, fine, I'll hold your purse. So you have to find a very delicate middle ground there, which is, sure, that's about it. That's, that's the level of intonation you want to have with the holding of the purse. And then once you hold it, once you're holding the purse, you, you don't want to hold it by the handle because you look like a guy who carries a purse. So you have, and you, you, you can't, and if you hold it kind of like a football, like tucked underneath your arm, you look like a really dumb thief. Like, I'm just carrying, you can't see it. I'm just carrying it right here. So the, the only way to really deal with this thing is to sort of hold it like you have no idea what it is. <laughs> like, what is this strange object I'm now holding? Perhaps I'll hold it in front of me in case it explodes. You know, like, so you're holding it like this, trying to act, like trying to send the message to everybody who would be watching you, who you'd never meet in your life. Attention, people of the mall who I'll never meet. I'm not comfortable holding this purse. And you get those, the, the, like, high, the high school age guys, the guys in college look at you like, sucker, I'll never do that. You, you probably drive a minivan, which I do. And just... And you get a little look of solidarity from other guys who have had that happen to them before, like, I'm with you, brother, stay strong. <laughs> and there is this sense within me, at least, I don't know if it's for you, my guess is it's true of every guy in here who's ever had to hold a purse in the mall, is that you have a sense within you that is, am I, this is kind of conflicting here, because I, I, I have a sense of loyalty to all men everywhere, not just me as a guy, but all men, the whole gender, everywhere in the world, like in somehow I'm betraying my gender and holding this purse, especially if I hold it by the handle, and so there's this, there's this whole, I'm with the guy's loyalty, but then there's also your wife who looks at you and says, or your girlfriend or whatever, looks at you and says, would you hold my, my purse? And you have to go, Sure. Because you have to ask yourself, is my loyalty to all men everywhere or to my first and truest and deepest and dearest love? And therein lies the conflict. It's the same question, believe it or not, this question of allegiance about who has my heart. The same question is exactly the same question that's, that's raised throughout the entire Bible. It's a question about who do the Jews belong to? Who do the people who follow Jesus? Who is your first love? Who has your heart? And the sort of probably one of the best examples of this scenario takes place uh, in the book of Daniel. If you, if you need a Bible, you want to follow along in a Bible, some folks will walk by and hand you by. You could raise your hand if you just want to follow along on the screen. I'll put all of it on the screen, whatever. But the question being asked, in, or question being raised for the Jews living under Babylonian rule, the Babylonians, or the Babylonians um, invaded in 586 BCE, as we sort of call it now, BC. And there's this, all of these, all of the, the, the Jews belonging in that place are kicked out. They're sort of um, overrun by these people, and the, the Babylonians invade, kick them all out. And the, sort of the book of Daniel, if, we're, if you want to follow along, Daniel chapter 1, is where this sort of, this account is sort of capsulized a little bit. So let's take a look at it. We're Daniel chapter 1, and it, um, no, I should say this as well. We're not, we're not even going to scratch the surface of Daniel. Daniel is a book that has tons of layers. It has tons of debate, scholarly debate about it. There's all kinds of layers to it. Um, Christians, um, in the Christian Bible, we regard Daniel as one of the major prophets. There's lots of prophecy about future things that are supposed to happen. Um, but the Jews, actually, they don't, list them, they don't list the book of Daniel as a prophet because prophetic speaking, in the Jewish understanding, always has this idea that people who are spoken to by a prophet are always told, to turn their lives around. Like, this is what the prophets did. They would tell the people, hey, everybody, you're headed the wrong direction, turn around. That's the Christian word, the word for that is repent. But he would just tell everybody, turn around. And Daniel doesn't do that. The book of Daniel is about something different. It's about 
an encouragement for Jews who have been scattered, who have lost their homeland. It's an encouragement for them on how to live as people who are under foreign occupation and in exile. How are we supposed to live now that these other people, the Babylonians, have come in? This is, this is sort of the encouragement that Daniel, the, the book of Daniel is about. So here's where it is. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. First of all, everybody here, we have to say the word Jehoiakim together because it just seems like a word that needs to be pronounced out loud. Okay, so on the count of three, we will, with as much New Year's gusto as we can produce, we will say the word Jehoiakim, <laughs> okay? One, two, three, Jehoiakim. See, don't you feel wonderful? I don't even know much about Jehoiakim, but now we said it. Okay, here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, a couple things we have to sort of understand what's happening here. What's being set up here is a regime change. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was in charge. And now there's this other guy, Nebuchadnezzar, that's come in. And now when you have this happen, two things happen here that mean something very significant. One is that God's representative, this king is now captured by the foreign invaders, and the sacred elements that belong to the temple have been taken. Which means the temple, you have to understand, this is the place where God, where heaven and earth intersected on a regular basis. This is where the people would go to meet with God, to make sacrifices, to understand the nature of their God, to hear, this is is the temple. And to defile it would mean that God has abandoned the temple. And if the king, God's representative, has been taken, it means clearly that God has abandoned these people. This is the way they would have understood the scenario. Only what gets even a little crazier is, look at verse 2 again. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. What this means then is that while it seems like there's a regime change, there's something even more bizarre happening here. That the one responsible for this regime change apparently is God himself. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. As well as some of the stuff from the temple, some of these sacred objects. And you have to imagine how the original readers would have heard this. Wait, wait a second. God, we, God's abandoned us, but he, he, he chose to abandon. He left us. He's given us over to these other people. He's left and he's responsible for all of this stuff which is kind of a disconcerting idea. There's a regime change, but, there doesn't, but then God's asserting that he's in charge of it all. So what does it all mean? Now listen to the way, in fact, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit as we go. Listen to the way uh, Nebuchadnezzar deals with the sort of people that he's invaded. Verse three says this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court of officials, or court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites and the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Let me stop there. Now, there's sort of, this is sort of a mixed bag. If, you're, if there's some invasion, and then you're, there's an announcement that goes out, there's a, an order to gather all the handsome and smart people, smart guys together, and you don't make the cut... <laughs> You know, there's kind of this, you know, I don't really know if I want to be captured or anything, but I felt like I was kind of one of the handsome, smart people. 
I'm sorry, we'll pass. Thank you. You, your friends over here, come with me. We're looking for handsome and smart. And this is kind of what happens. So the, the king is going around gathering all these handsome, smart people who have some kind of aptitude for learning, but you might be handsome, but you're dumb, or you're dumb and ha- you're, you're, you're smart, but you're not handsome, but I only want the combination of both is what the king asks for. And he goes and finds the sort of super impressive young guns, and he brings them together. Verse 5 says this. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. It says that they're going to be trained in the language and in the literature of the Babylonians. And this will take, this is three years. You should note this in some translations, it says that they would be trained in, which not just taught or learn about, but they would actually be sort of indoctrinated into this idea of Babylonia, this whole Babylonian culture. And what's interesting is, he, this king doesn't take the best and the brightest, the up-and-coming royal, members of the royal family who are so great, who are about to lead, and throw them in a dungeon. Instead, he does something totally different. He treats them like they're part of the royal family, of his own royal family. What's going on here? First thing you should know is this. This king isn't treating everybody like that. Everybody else in this land he's conquered isn't getting the royal treatment. Only these people, and his very clear agenda is this to take the next generation of of these people's leaders, the the Jews' next generation of leaders, and not by power of coercion or by force or by intimidation or by fear, but by this sort of cajoling, cajoling sort of delight and awe. Let me win them over to the greatness of Babylon. You know, in the ancient world, Babylon, the, the Babylonians had huge advances in science and law and in politics. They had all kind they're like this idea of let's give them a Harvard education. In the ancient era, this is what this would be like. And let's win these guys over. Verse 6 is this. This guy's get some names here. It says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. This is super significant. Now, here's why it's significant. The Jews are people who are, what are, they have a covenant relationship with their God. This is totally unique in the ancient Near East. A covenant relationship with God looks different than the other kinds of relationships that people had with their gods in this time. In the ancient world, there was a relationship that most people had with their gods, which was based on trying to appease a, a volatile, unpredictable God who was likely to strike you down at any moment. And so you had to make sacrifices and do certain things so that you could keep God at bay because he just might strike you down or ruin things or prohibit things from happening. Instead, a covenant relationship is much more like a relationship between a husband and a wife, which says, I choose to belong to you, and I choose to belong to you. And so it's almost, another way to sort of characterize it is almost as a a family relationship of a father and his kids. We belong together. And so the covenant relationship was sort of celebrated in different things, like with festivals and in sacrifices. It was understood to be in certain sort of rituals that would sort of remind the people that they belonged to their God. And one of the ways the covenant was expressed that their people, these people belonged to their God, was in the names that they were given. So Daniel's name, just to give you a sense, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah's name means God's, God shows grace. Mishael, his name means who is like God. And Azariah, that name means the Lord helps. And the changing of names, in addition to this learning of all of the Babylonian language and literature to be trained in it, is about breaking a covenant loyalty and about calling into question allegiances from the very core of our identity. 
Who are you guys? Who is your God? To whom do you belong is the question. Now, this is a pretty brilliant plan that this guy has sort of got under, sort of undergoing here. These guys are getting the royal treatment and education, and they're going to learn what it means to become a Babylonian, to forget in some way what it's like to belong to their God. To, to recap the scenario, Nebuchadnezzar and his powerful army invades, but it turns out God's actually the one who allows him, allows him to do this, to take the sacred objects from the temple, to take the king. Then the young guns are rounded up and they're treated like royalty. And there's this massive loyalty-breaking effort that's kind of underway. And it's not with fear or coercion or by intimidation. It's by something different. Just by this gentle sort of, what if the world looked a little different for you guys, the next generation of leaders? What if it looked a little, what if it looked a little more Babylonian than Jewish? Isn't, is that all that bad? The picture I have in my head is this um, sort of, I remember one time we were... Um, my wife and I, before we had kids, we were trying to go on a, on a cheap vacation, which I, I guess you never try to go on an expensive vacation, but we were trying to figure out a way, we, you know, we're on this budget, how do, we, how do we go on a vacation? So we realized, let's find a place that nobody wants to go to at a particular season, so we decided in August to go to Palm Springs. <laughs> nobody goes there. It's really cheap, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, so we're in, we're in Palm Springs. The hotel rates are just bargain city, which we couldn't figure out until we got there and opened the car door. And we just like, poof, like the, the heat literally punches you in the face. It's 158 degrees when we got out of the car. And, you know, we're, we're there and, I, and we're like, we got to get to the pool. And, you know, we kind of realized as soon as we're outside, it's just so miserable. We, there's nobody by, even by the pool deck because it's so hot. So as soon as the sun goes down, actually, behind the shadow of the hotel itself... We're able to go down to the pool deck where it's still hot, but there's not the sun beating down on you. So we're, we go down there, it's, you know, like four or five in the afternoon, and I, I get one of those raft things, you know, like a little foam rubber raft thing, and I'm, and I'm laying there next to my wife, who's kind of in a, in a deck chair, she's reading a book, whatever, and I have my legs sort of draped over the side of the, the thing so I don't drift away, because it's, it's a huge pool. It's not like a backyard pool. It's, you know, it's as big as this whole building, one of those giant resort pools. And so I have my leg on the side of the pool, of the pool deck, and I'm laying down on the raft, and I just slowly, my guard's a little down because the sun's not out. Because, you know, when the sun's out, you're like, don't fall asleep because you'll fall asleep with your hand right here. And then you'll have the handprint sunburn or whatever. So something or just your face. So I'm kind of, my guard's down because the sun's now, you know, kind of down. So my guard's down, my leg's up on the side of the pool. And I just start, the pool's kind of rocking me slowly. And I start to drift off to sleep just ever. It's, it's so comfortable in this pool and the air's so warm. And pretty soon I'm out. And... And in my head, I'm imagining that I've only barely drifted from the side of the pool. But, you know, pretty soon as the sort of comfort, and they have sort of the, that sort of smooth jazz music in the background, you know, whatever that is, where you're like, my kids like hate it and I don't love it either, but it's just so soothing. And there I am, smooth jazz in the pool. And I'm just, and pretty soon I'm out in the middle of the pool. And now I'm out, I'm, I'm out, I'm like out, out, asleep. And you know, you guys ever had this scenario? Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you're in like a large room like this size. Maybe I'll even see it on some of you guys in a moment. But have you ever been in a room like this, like in college, where you see someone start to nod off? And then what happens to them as they nod off is they have that full body, like, panic spasm, their leg. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the greatest joy for a, for a college kid to see this happen, by the way, to watch someone who's going down and to see them flip that desk thing, shklunk, you know, big notebook flies up and everything, pencils are everywhere. And they act like, well, I was, I was, I'm away, I was, everything's, all oh, my stuff fell. Okay. This is what happens to me in the middle of the pool where I'm like, go, go, 
please tell me, God, I'm invisible. I'm invisible, right? God, no one can see me do that, right? So there's, you know, I, I don't know who saw me, but I was totally humiliated. I didn't make eye contact with a single person. And I realized, having now woken up, I'm in the middle of the pool. And I, I, what I had thought, why there was panic, was because I thought I was right next to where we would be, where my wife was, next to the side of the pool. I, but I'd been, I just slowly drifted away. This is the kind of thing that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to recreate for these guys. What if we could create a kind of world that's so comfortable and so wonderful for you that if you could just gently slip away, eventually you'd find yourselves in the middle of Babylon, of all that is Babylon. He doesn't take these young guys, tie a rope around them, and drag them out to the middle of the pool, as it were. He doesn't say, now you're in the middle of the pool and try to leave and we'll kill you. What he says is, isn't it nice here? Look at all of what we've been giving you. You get this great education. You get to eat from my table. Isn't this great? You know, I think as we can kind of see where this is kind of going, but usually the, the most regrettable things we've done in our lives aren't the result of a single choice. There's usually a final choice that sort of puts us into those places where we've done those things and we go, how in the world did I do that? But usually, uh, for most of us and in most circumstances, it's usually a long series of micro-compromises that we barely realized until we end up in the middle of the pool. For me, these are sort of the kind of gray areas of life. But for me, they're... As you take them, kind of look at those compromises one by one, they seem a little less gray and a little more black and white. For me, there's all kinds of permission and indulgences that I give myself that I don't think anybody would ever know about. Things that I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm, you know, I'm kind of supposed to kind of have this sort of above reproach, for those of you guys have heard of that term before, which means the tendency for someone to live above reproach who has things that are secret in their life is to hide and to develop ways in which there's sort of a falseness about them. It's very easy for me to fall into that trap. If I think something in my head, it's a judgment, a private judgment, a private sort of um, anger that's sort of worked out. It might be a way that I think about something or someone that's inappropriate. I might let my mind go to that place and nobody really has to know about it. So really, what kind of damage is it doing? And this is the kind of thing we're talking about. A tiny little micro-compromise that nobody would ever know about, but that is somehow compounding. By itself, it's not the one that's going to sort of knock me over, but those kinds of things not, like sort of stacked up on top of themselves begin to create in me an environment in which a bigger compromise can be made. What is it for you? What is the thing that sort of gently rocks you to sleep, to the thing that you kind of, what are the secret places where you go, the compromises that you might make, that if you were to kind of let them kind of continue to compile up, you'd end up in the middle of the pool? Remember, the writer is trying to help his readers understand how to live as exiles in the presence of their captors. What he's saying is, don't live uncritically in the world that's around you. Don't just sort of be a member of a society and let things sort of happen. Instead, don't lose yourself. Remember that you belong to God. Remember that you belong to Him. The relationship you have is with Him. And don't forget your first love. Now, in the spirit of resolutions, New Year's, look what Daniel resolves in verse 8. But Daniel... Resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. 
Okay, a couple things you have to know. First is this, food's a huge marker of covenant relationship between these people and their God. We belong to you, God, and we refuse to eat certain things because we belong to you. It is a reminder of our relationship with you. Daniel says, this is going to be my act of rebellion. I'm actually not going to participate in this thing. They have to remember, too, this is a time and place where it's not like everybody has all kinds of food. They just open up their refrigerator, they head over to Costco and buy a giant tub of pretzels that, you know, if you don't eat within you know, two days, they spoil anyways, but you've got a tub of them. They don't have that scenario. These are people who are subsistence living, and subsistence living. Particularly, most of the people that have now been invaded are living on even less. And what's being promised to Daniel and his buddies is, you get to eat from the king's ration, which is going to be better food, and you're going to get more of it. You, you guys have seen the difference between like a regular Snickers and a king-size Snickers, you know, right? Like, here's what it looks like, just for a size comparison. I recently found, I don't know, I think now that they break up this, the king-size Snickers into two chunks because it's just too obnoxious to have a baseball bat-sized Snickers, right? But you can see the fun size is what everybody is, this is the regular ration. The, up, the, like, neg- the regular size sort of version of the Snickers bar is sort of the I like Snickers kind of version. And the king-size is the I'm going to regret this size of the Snickers. And presumably, Daniel and his buddies are being offered the largest portion of the best kind of food. And what he says is, I don't even want the Snickers at all. I don't, want any, I don't want any of it. I just want vegetables, which is what my kids say every night to me. <laughs> Dad, if we could just only have vegetables, you know. And I just, yes, my children. Um, but look at this act of rebellion. What he says is, this is a pleasure that's being extended to all of these guys as a special honor for them. And what he says is, I don't, I don't, I don't want it. And what's crazy is, if you look really closely at verse 8, he, he's not like, he doesn't throw the plate back in the, the official's face. He just simply says, he asks for permission. Hey, would it be okay if we just ate vegetables? I mean, everybody else is kind of starving, so, but the food is this covenant symbol, and I don't belong to Babylon or its gods. I belong to my God. And I'm not trying to incite a violent uprising, but this is, make no mistake, an act of rebellion, and it's a refusal of a pleasure that is just being extended as a special honor. Listen to this quote from the Viceroy of India regarding Mahatma Gandhi. Listen to this very interesting sort of parallel here. Persons in power should be very careful how they deal with a person who cares nothing for sensual pleasure, nothing for riches, <coughs> excuse me, nothing for comfort or praise or promotion but is simply determined to do what he believes to be right. He is a dangerous enemy because his body, which you can always conquer, gives you so little purchase upon his soul. Leave that up there. Don't, don't take it. Leave that up there for just a sec. There are these four guys who are overrun and being given whatever they want to have as members of this other royal community. And they say, could we not have everything? Can we just not, not have that? I thought there's a guy, um, keep this, this up there. There's a guy who I, I know who subscribes to Sports Illustrated, and he called Sports Illustrated and says, could you just not send me the swimsuit issue? And they're like, what? They're, they're like, it's free. He's like, I know, just don't send that one. Can you leave it? Can you just, I don't need it. I don't, I don't think I want to have it in my house. And they're like, but it's free. He's like, I know. Well, then they're like, can you just throw it away? And he's like, no, don't send it to my house. But it's free. I don't want it. 
Same idea here. To read it again. Persons in power should be very careful how they deal with a person who cares nothing for sensual pleasure. Nothing for riches, nothing for comfort or praise or flattery or promotion, but is simply determined to do what he believes to be right. He is a dangerous enemy because his body, which you can always conquer, gives you so little purchase upon his soul. And these guys say, there's a pleasure that's being given to us, which we say, we just don't want it. So you can't have our soul. Look at verse 16. We'll skip down a little bit. So the guard took away their choice food and wine uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said to these, young, to these four men, these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now let me stop right there. Understand something. Evidently, their decision to maintain this relationship with their God, this covenant relationship in which they belong to him by rejecting the food itself, has made them better at their jobs at serving this foreign king who defiled the temple and invaded. What is going on here? Keep reading, 18 to 20. At the end of time, set, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, which is three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now the question I have is why didn't God give them a different kind of power? Like, hey God, we belong to you. And then to Daniel, he gave laser beam eye vision. And to Mishael, he gave super strength. And, you know, like, why didn't he, he to, so, to, to Azariah, he made him invisible. Or whatever it might be. And, and they all, get, you know, they garnered some weapons and they took back the temple articles and they, they laser beamed Nebuchadnezzar and he exploded before the people and everyone cheered and God became celebrated. Why not? That's a great movie, by the way. Why doesn't that happen? It says that God gives them their abil- the ability to do their jobs, which they have been commissioned by this foreign invading king. He gives them the ability to do that job better than anybody else. And like I said, we're barely scratching the surface of this, this, this book of Daniel. But clearly now these four guys have an audience with the king that they would never have otherwise had. And the one responsible for that, God. The only, these people have sort of figured out a way to live as people who belong to God with skillful acts of intentional rebellion within the culture. And they're living beyond the, this is how we do things here, this is the new way the world works. They're living beyond the sort of, I guess this is how we do things now. Instead, they're, they're living beyond these things and they're not inciting a riot, but they are deliberately acting in rebellion to the system which has said, this is the new normal. In this new year, who has your heart? Where is your allegiance? How do we live sort of joyously or skillfully as non-participants in all of the comfort and flattery and normalness of the world that it provides for us? There are certain ways in which the world functions in which we ought to say, maybe that's not the way it ought to be give you a, a sense. My, the person who I know who does this better than anybody else is my own wife. We live, um, my guess is that most, of, most people, maybe not you, but most people live with a kind of relationship that they have with their neighbors that I just call garbage can relationships. And I don't mean that they're like trashy relationships. I just mean that 
the nature of their relationship literally is on Thursday. Hey, Bill, how's the kids? Yeah, cool. Well, uh, okay, good talk. And then, you know, sort of the garage goes behind you and there's like sort of, that's the end of our, I'm polite with that guy, but, you know, I don't really know him. And then you might see him on, you know, Friday morning and you're coming to pick up the trash. Hey, man, good to see you. Well, all right, cool. Well, don't really want to talk to you. So I'm going to, well, see you later. And then as soon as you, you could cross the threshold of the garage sensor, it's like, see you later, bye. You know, oh, too bad I couldn't talk, the garage closed. You know, like that's kind of, most of us have that relationship with our neighbors. And we're kind of directed, this is kind of normal behavior. Like, you don't have to know them. They just, you can be polite to them. And, you know, we apologize if my kid throws a ball in their yard or whatever. That's kind of the way it works. My wife goes, I think that's dumb. I don't think that's okay. I'm like, I, I don't know that it's all that dumb. I, what are you doing? I think that's okay. I mean, we, we don't know everybody. She starts saying, so she, what she does, she takes our elementary school phone and email directory. I'm like, what are you doing with that? I'm emailing everybody within a two-block area of us and inviting them to come over to our, our little alley that we live on. Are you sure that's such a good idea? Yes, it's a great idea. I think we should, I'm so tired. We live all, next to all these people, and we barely know them, and I just think we should get them to come around. Well, I, I don't... Uh, okay. Uh... Uh, okay, so she has, so she starts sending out this email and said, we live on this alley. So it's like, hey, we're going to meet in this alley, which is, you know, there's like, I don't know how many houses, but all these garages that face each other. We're going to meet in the middle of it. We'll have some, you know, bring enough food for your family. Don't worry about bringing food for everybody. Bring enough for just yourself, which of course, anytime anybody's invited to a picnic, they always bring way more than they should. We have a giant mound of food. My, one of my friends buys a, uh, our alley, she buys a, um, a $25 mobile fire pit which we immediately put a whole cord of wood on, and we have this giant illegal fire in our alley. You know, like, I'm like, well, okay. Hopefully we don't light everything on fire in the world. I mean, it's this huge fire. And we have the kids, all of a sudden these kids start showing up. And there's, they're, they're roasting marshmallows, and there's all these families that start showing up. And we set up the chairs around this fire, mainly to pre- prevent the little kids from crashing into it on their scooters and stuff. And we're roasting marshmallows, and there's all this food, and there's all these people connecting that I've never met before. And we're looking around and going, this is so great. And I'm like, well, it was kind of my idea to my neighbors. This kind of thing I had, I was thinking about for a long time, actually. <clears throat> but I'm looking around, and there's all these people beginning to connect with each other. And, um, uh, my, of course, all the kids knew each other because they were from elementary school together. But we start having these conversations. And my next-door neighbor, she goes to my wife, and she says, she starts, she's crying. And she says, I always wanted to be in this kind of community. I always wanted to know my neighbors in this way. And I never knew how to do it. Thank you so much for setting this up. And my wife, Amanda, is like, well, I really didn't do it. I just kind of emailed her. And, you know, she's like, no, 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 I'm, When are we doing this again? There's 40 or 50 people in our alley. There's eight families or so, and they're all hanging. It was so great. And the people who couldn't come were like, tell us when the next one's coming up. It's January 14th, by the way. We're having another one. If you can find us, look for the fire pit <laughs> or the sirens, either one. <laughs> she says, I always wanted to do this. And our, my guess is that most people in the world who have been told the way we operate is this sort of casual, hey, I know you, I see you over there, but I don't really want to talk to you kind of relationship. And most of those people say, I wish I could have more. I just don't know how. My wife is a sort of catalyst for this kind of neighborhood relationship sort of gathering. Because she said the way that the world operates isn't good enough. It's just not good enough. One more quick story. Again, my wife is the hero of this story. Um, as we start thinking about relationships and friendships and things like that, we've been told by the world that most of your friendships, 
practically speaking, so that everything works out, should be with people that are generally of the same sort of, they're mostly like you. They have kind of the kids like you. They've got um, the same kind of interest. They like the same football teams. They vote really similarly to you. And they're, you're, they're pretty predictable kinds of people in your life. And they generally are probably most likely the same race as you. And as we moved into our neighborhood years ago, um, my wife and I were praying, more so her than me, but what would it look like for us to have a bigger variety, more diversity of our friendships and relationships with people who don't agree with the same stuff as us, who might be on the complete opposite end of the spectrum? I'm like, let's, let's not get that carried away, Amanda. Try to pack those in a little. That's a little crazy. And what if there are different races and all kinds of stuff? And I'm like, okay, we're praying for this stuff. In our neighborhood, there's these people now who, we, who have become great friends of ours who have what I would call refrigerator rights in our own house. You know what I mean? Where they, don't, they walk into our house and they just take a cup and go to the refrigerator and pour it. They don't ask us, would it be okay if I could have a cup of juice? Or They just walk in and they're like, what's up, you guys? How's it going? What are you guys watching on TV? That kind of level of familiarity. And these people are a different race than us. And they're so, our kids are becoming such good friends. And they don't, we don't agree on the same everything and they're becoming friends with us. And this, my wife then joined this sort of soccer mom's soccer group. And it was all these moms who had kids who played soccer, but they never played soccer growing up. But they thought, we want to do this. This looks like fun. So all these moms start hanging out and playing. And, of course, my wife invites everyone over to our alley to hang out to our house, to be in our house. And, you know, so one, um, one person starts coming over, and um, she's gay. She has, and her, and her, um, her partner and her are at our house and they're hanging out and I'm, I quickly turn into pastor. This is a ministry mode. Hi, welcome to our home. I'd like you to welcome. This is our living room. You can sit right here. If you have any questions, you can ask me. I'll be here afterward. And I totally go to this like, and my wife's looking at me like, is this how you talk to people? I'm like, I don't know. I'm panicking. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> you can check our website. It's, uh, you know, no, I, I just, and so I, I'm, I totally turn this into like a ministry. And I didn't realize that what was actually happening here was forming a friendship with people who are so vastly different than me. And what ended up happening is my wife has surgery not too long ago, and she has to be on bed rest. And the first people to show up at our house with food for our family, so we don't have to prepare it, my wife can just relax, you know, whatever. This couple. Huge pot of homemade soup. Hey, we were thinking about you guys and thinking about Amanda. Just want to make sure she's okay. If you guys need anything, let us know. And I, rem- I remember being emotionally just like smacked in the face. What was once a ministry now became a friendship. And there was this really sort of merging of friendship and ministry in such a way that I felt like, oh my gosh, they're, they're caring for us. That's not the way it's supposed to go, is it? And then, not long after that, I get a call from uh, one of the couple and they, they say, hey, our, our son is having a real tough time. We really think he needs maybe a male influence in his life. And do you know of a way that the church might be able to help him find that? Off the phone, I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I think we could probably work something out. I, I know of a couple of people over there. You know, I mean, I mean, just so we got him connected into, with a small group leader and a volunteer who could care about him and love him in a powerful and meaningful way. And I began to wonder, is this, maybe this is the way that the way the world works ought to be skillfully and purposefully and intentionally rebelled against. That maybe in this year we talk about is the sort of, we really begin to take seriously this floating away kind of concept and begin to go, where am I being floated away to that just sort of understood to be normal and I'm comfortable with it? 
that maybe there's another way to live that's, that's different than casually accepting the way the world works as the sort of de facto, this is how we do everything kind of thing. And maybe it's a question of allegiance about who has your heart. Let me ask you, what will be your act of skillful, intentional rebellion against the way and the systems of the world in 2012? What will that be? How will you live like an exile from within a culture that has subsumed you into it, that has taken you over? What does it look like to live as an exile in that world? It may be the sort of casual acceptance of the way things are ought to be questioned itself. The way the world works may be a broken system. Would you close your eyes with me and just consider a few things before the band comes up and leads us in a response of worship? With your eyes closed and some time to consider just a few things. What does it mean for you to live out a skillful and intentional act of rebellion in your life and in your world? Where in your own life do you find that you have been floating away and not really paying that much attention to it? What are the micro-compromises that are beginning to stack up that are leading you in a direction differently than you wanted to have been in? In your own life, Are you being invited, encouraged, challenged to welcome the stranger, the one who looks differently than you, who speaks a different language perhaps, who maybe totally and completely disagrees with you on most everything? What does it look like to welcome that person to your own life? Where the merging of ministry and friendship become almost seamless. What habit is it that you ought to release that everybody else believes is just simply okay? Are there ways in which you ought to conduct your own business, the way that you operate as an employee? Maybe as a student, is there a way in which you ought to change that maybe there's a way everybody does things that lacks either integrity or purpose or effort? Maybe there's just a rethinking of the viability of the phrase. That's just the way the world works. Jesus, would you give to us courage to live acts of rebellion in the world, to not tacitly accept what the world provides as the way things ought to be? Instead, God, would you give us a sense that we belong to you? You are our God. We are your people. So God, speak to us and give us the courage to live out what it means to be skillful in our rebellion. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's continue to think about that for a moment. Let me just sing this over you. To the ends of the earth we will go. To the ends of the earth we will go. Fill us with power. 
Fill us with power. 